Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on this episode is Richard Seeger. Richard's a great climate scientist with broad interests. He's worked on tropical atmosphere-ocean interactions, climate variability and change, and especially hydroclimate and drought on timescales from interannual to millennial. One of the unusual aspects of Richard's work, and one that I particularly appreciate, is its historical character. He's written many important papers about specific events that had human significance, like the Dust Bowl in the United States in the 1930s, or the drought leading to the recent Syrian civil war. So his work has a direct relevance to humanity in a way that not all climate science does. Richard comes from the United Kingdom, and we talked about his origins there, but he's spent most of his scientific career at Columbia, and most of that specifically at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, and I've known Richard for about the last 20 years of that history. So we talked about his early days as a student with Mark Kane, whom I've also interviewed, and you'll hear that in a few weeks, up to his more recent work as a senior scientist and a mentor to many students, postdocs, and junior colleagues. Richard has wide-ranging interests, and we share an interest in jazz, and we talk about that a little bit. He also has very strong political views, and that comes up in his biography when we talk about how he met his wife in the 1980s at a Cuban nightclub in New York, and then later in the interview when we talk about the Green New Deal. In the middle of the interview, there's a part where Richard explains to me his recent paper in Science about why global warming is forcing the tropical Pacific not towards a state reminiscent of El Nino, as most of the climate models are currently saying, but rather in the opposite direction toward La Nina. This is a really important piece of work. Richard and his co-authors have made a convincing case that the models are wrong, and if that's true, this result has far-reaching implications. For example, although we didn't talk about this, it would mean more Atlantic hurricanes in the future, not fewer, as studies based on the models have tended to predict so far. So this was a long discussion, and it gets a little technical, but we didn't edit it out because I think it's a great example of a real conversation between scientists where actual learning took place. I was aware of his paper before we talked about it, but I hadn't read it yet, and I didn't really understand it from what little I did know. And you'll hear me come to understand it for real in that moment as Richard explains it to me. I don't think there are many examples of this kind of conversation out there, so I hope you'll bear with us through it and that you'll find it as enlightening as I did. Okay, there's a lot more I could say about Richard. He's a remarkable scientist and person, but it's better to let him speak for himself. He did that really well in this interview, so let's get on with my conversation with Richard Seeger. How about we start with uh, your biography, if you don't mind? So where where were you where are you from where were you born I'm from England Yeah I knew that <laughs> Okay I'm from Norwich England I was born in Norwich which is a, a a small city over in near the east coast of England about 100 miles northeast of London so that's where I was born and that's where I lived until I went to university in Liverpool yeah. um over the other side of the country yeah. and after getting an undergraduate degree there i came to columbia in new york city to do my phd how'd you get like why why how'd that happen what did you study in the university before that so um at the university in 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 liverpool the reason i ended up coming here is i was doing quite a lot of um courses and study in atmospheric sciences um, was that the ocean? What was your major? Do you have majors? How does it? You yeah, do, no, right? no. I was in fact, actually it's quite focused in, in the UK, right? I was actually in um, physical geography um, at Liverpool, and which covered a lot of 
what are now, you know, considered Earth, Sci- Earth sciences. Um, but um, within that, I was doing quite a lot of work on um, atmospheric sciences, climate, and ocean- oceanography. So, um, my, you know, in the in the British system, you have these tutors, right? So every uh. You know, there's a professor who is assigned to be a tutor of a small group of students in each year. And in my third year, my tutor was Anne Henderson Sellers, who's oh. an atmospheric scientist. She's not at Liverpool anymore. I think she's somewhere in Australia now. Yeah, I mean, I know she is. Um, but she had been doing work on cloud radiation feedbacks and albedo feedback, and she'd also done some work on climate impacts of Amazon deforestation, which is relevant this week. Yeah. Um, so so I, I enjoyed doing um, the atmospheric science work, but in thinking about where I was going to go after graduating, this was at a time when it was towards the end of the first Margaret Thatcher um, government, and Britain was in this enormous recession at that time. I don't know what the unemployment rate yeah. was, but it was probably like 15, 20% yeah. um, youth unemployment, unemployment amongst college graduates was very high. It was a yeah. really bleak time. Um, and of course, you know, Thatcher was, it was just awful because, um, Thatcher was so reprehensible and Liverpool yes. was one of the major, um, sites of resistance to the Thatcher regime. So, um, it, you know, staying within the United Kingdom at that time was definitely going to cause, have some problems. And Anne Henderson Sellers, you know, suggested, well, you know, well, you know, you can always go study graduates uh, to graduate school in the United States. Um, in other words, you might not have done that had it not been for well, the economic. It, it, it wasn't like something you'd always known you wanted to do. Or something. No, it wasn't something I always had known that I wanted to do, and it was something that would have needed to be suggested as a possibility because the yeah. idea that um, you could come here and someone was going to pay for you to yeah. study for many years at that time. A typical PhD program was six, seven years at that time. Yeah. This was 1983. Um, the idea that someone would pay for that was news to me. Um, yeah. So that seemed like um, a great um, option. She had just come back from spending a sabbatical right here on 112th Street at NASA oh, Giss. Um, so... Um, that she suggested that was, would be one possibility. I also considered Ohio State, Colorado, and I can't remember North Carolina. I can't remember uh-huh. some, some other places, uh-huh. but, um, at that, you know, in, in the early 1980s before I'd of course been, had already developed this interest in jazz. Where'd that come from? Well, actually, you know, the first piece of jazz music that I, ever really liked was that what which i really don't like now but the piano in the charlie brown um yeah sure which is yeah who is that isn't it vince garaldi yeah vince garaldi yeah west 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 coast or whatever but the the that sort of combination of piano bass and drums and that sort of um the rapidity and so on just interested me and did I, you ever hear ellis Masar- marsalis uh remake of all those songs no yeah, no i good, didn't actually. yeah <laughs> and then um i remember getting hold of an oscar peterson record 
um, which was a you know a much higher level of artistic achievement than yeah. Garaldi. Um, and then I remember buying an Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers record. So one thing yeah. led to another, and um, in this was still when living in Norwich. Norwich had a pretty lively music scene at that time, and uh, I remember going to see both at clubs in the city and at the University of East Anglia quite a lot of British based yeah British jazz musicians so British has had a you know a big jazz sure. scene since the 1920s or 1930s sure. so but the point is just an independent interest it wasn't like some family member or no you no, know, no no like no. you knew musicians no, no. or so something my, like that my brother developed had developed the same you know interest um so um, but it didn't, it wasn't something that came down from mother or father or anything. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of exposure at that time, by the time I'd moved to Liverpool, Liverpool is a huge city. Well, a big city, of course, attracted a lot of American musicians touring coming through. And it's like 30 yeah. miles from Manchester, which also gets a lot of these. And I remember riding my bike between Liverpool and Manchester. I remember riding to, Manchester to see the Sun Ra Orchestra one night and then no at one, two o'clock in the morning riding bike back from Manchester to Liverpool, which went through Salford, which at that time was like one of the worst, most deprived slums in uh. you, you did not stop at red lights uh, <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning in, in Salford. So um but I remember you know, I remember the the art ensemble of Chicago came through. Really? To Liverpool? And either Liverpool or Manchester, maybe. I certainly saw them in London a couple of times. Um, Dollar Brand, who's based in New York, the South African pianist. Anyway, a whole load of people. So, so you even got into the far out stuff early. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, the European avant-garde as well. You know, yeah. Will- Willem Broeker and uh, the, in the, the very unique British avant-garde, Mike Westbrook was a then a favorite and 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 still is so and liverpool um had great record stores a lot of american imports because yeah. it's had this because of the shipping trade it's had a yeah. musical exchange between liverpool and new york that goes back decades so it was of really the beatles. of course the, be- the beatles <laughs> yeah um that did not interest me at that time but um um but it was very easy to get American imported records in in yeah. in, in Liverpool. So I was f- fully aware of American jazz, and including what was then happening in the seventies and and eighties. So the I going to graduate school in New yeah. York City, someone would pay for me to live in, yeah. in in Manhattan was like a you know a dream come true. So when Columbia accepted me, it was like oh yeah, I'll definitely do that. But of course, I had no idea that that I would never ever go back it was like a at that time just what would be doing what i'd be doing for the next few years but um i made great use of that i certainly saw a lot of jazz in new york city in the ni- in the 1980s also 90s and 2000s and, and on and off yes <laughs> <laughs> right so new york city in the 80s right i was here i was in high school a little sketchy at times but so columbia was um a little neighborhood that was very sort of isolated at that time. And the graduate students, I mean, even south, the area south of Columbia in the West 100s and 90s was considered a 
dangerous area. Many yeah. students would to go further south would take a, a train or a bus, but would not walk down through that area. Yeah, sure. And Broadway in the eighties was a big, you know, red light streetwalker district. You know, it's hard to believe. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, yeah. It was completely different, and you know, there there was a, a really high rate of violence and. Um, Everything was everything was pretty dodgy, but you know Liverpool wasn't exactly a, a haven of peace at that time either. So um, the, the the cities have very you know compar- comparable histories. They both developed essentially with the slave trade, right? Yeah. So um, and they both had at that that time had were suffering the effects of the. You know, the reduction of employment in shipping, the departure of industries that have been built up around that and so on. So they have, they were founded around about, about the same time, grew at the same time and declined at the same time. New York, of course, has completely turned around, but Liverpool has not so much. So no. I know that you, so you get here in 83, you said? Mm-hmm. So I know that you were a student of Mark Cain, but now I'm doing the math. He wasn't here yet. No, right? he wasn't here. So yeah. how did that? Yeah, how, uh, how did your I, scientific career here start? With yeah, initially when I came here, my advisor was assigned to be um, David Rind, and I think oh yeah, um, I think Hansen as well. But I, huh. I, I I never spoke to him other than to say hello in the elevator every now and then. So you were at GIS, got it. I was for space physically studies. at GIS, yeah. and then um, starting in eighty three, and then. Um, Kane arrived in 84 or 85. Yeah, I talked to him about been, this. I don't he remember. He may not around have been then, teaching yeah. in his first year. So I, yeah. um, but the real, um, advisor to the graduate students there at GIS, there were about four or five, six of us or something like that, was the senior graduate student who was Walter Robinson. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. So he was, Finishing his unsupervised PhD. In Wait, literally, or was he a, technically a student of Rhind also, or something? He was technically a student of Rhind, but okay. he was working on a you know a wave-wave interaction problem in a channel model, you know, um, simulation stuff. <laughs> doing his own thing, and it was very much doing his own thing. But as you know, Walter is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And um, to the extent that the graduate students got any sort of advice and supervision at all, it came from Walter. Um, and I remember Walter saying, oh, look, you know, Lamont's hired a real oceanographer, Mark Kane. So, um, you know, you you should consider working with him. But I remember, and it must again have been the the influence of Walter Robinson, that I was more getting more interested in... in dynamics anyway and of course mark um as an you know an ocean dynamics guy yeah um seemed like an 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 appealing shift so i we i came up to lamont and we talked i as i and I, i remember we had a great conversation because um we sort of he the issues that we talked about and um, were related to, you know, the climate, the climatological setup in the tropics and in particular yeah. the subtropical highs. And um, yeah. why are the subtropical highs there where they are and why do they have this seasonal cycle that they 
do. Yeah. Um, and it, the conversation was entirely based around just staring at a, you know, a map and drawing on it with fingers and, <laughs> and yeah. so on. And, you know, that seemed like uh, uh, an interesting problem. And I started working on that. But the problem quickly shifted to why is the intertropical convergence zone, the ITCZ, where it is? Huh. Um, and that, you know, why is it north of the equator? Uh, clearly, it's a couple problem because the reason it's yeah. not on the equator is because there's cold upwelling water on the equator. But given that situation, why does it favor the north over the south? Or yeah. is there some way it actually could be on the equator? Or why is there one instead of in one hemisphere instead of two in each hem- in one in each hemisphere? So that is then the problem that I worked on for my thesis and yeah. we never solved that problem and i suppose that's problem still that's problem started getting looked at again in yeah. like the last decade um and i still think the the complete answer to that problem hasn't been provided yet yeah i was gonna if, say it doesn't seem solved to no i mean we were looking at that from uh, of course the, the purely from the point of view of the couple tropical dynamics right and there was a lot of work that was done on that at that time um and then the problem sort of got forgotten for a while and then um people like sarah kang and john john chang and um dargan frierson started looking at it but from the point of view of how the extra tropics influence itcz location yeah. Um, and forgetting almost entirely about the couple, the trop, the tropical coupling, the cop- coupling within the tropical zone itself. So we have a, with my current postdoc, Hong Hai Zhang, we have a proposal pending at NSF, which seeks to merge together the tropical dynamics and the extra tropical influences to do the whole global problem, which I don't think has been done. So you're still <laughs> trying to finish your thesis. So it's still, words. yeah, but I, I think that's always the case. That I, th- I don't think. Many scientists, I think, spend their entire career trying to solve their thesis problem. Not me. I dropped mine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Moved on, moved, moved on to something else. Yours was in the stratosphere, right? Yeah, I quit. But, um, but so at the time that you started this, though, Mark and Steve Zbiak were doing the what was going to yeah. become the super breakthrough ENSO work. So you must, That's have, been, right. you must have been aware of that. Yeah. Um, I was aware of that, and um, I remember calling up Mark, and he said, oh, you should come up this week. We're doing uh, these predictions of El Nino. That, that must have been in 1985 Yeah. Um, when on their mass comp computing system that they had, they were they had developed the, the ENSO um, simulation model as part of Steve's thesis at MIT. Yeah. Cause Steve arrived at, came here with Mark yep. from MIT. Yeah. And then they were applying that, um, to predictions using initialized predictions doing hindcast and then, yeah. and then boldly predicting the future from the middle of 1986 when, which yeah. was the first, um, prediction with the geophysical model. Yeah. Of, a, of a of an El Nino. I learned that they put out a press release. They put out a press release in the summer of 1986, predicting that 80 that winter there would be an El Nino event. So, did you have a sense of the significance of this? A sort of historical. Uh... Um. Yes, everyone had a sense of that because um, the the Tropical Ocean Global Atmosphere Program 
international research program, I think ran from 1985 to 1995. So from the 1982-83 El Nino on, everyone was aware about the global implications, mm. right? I mean, 82-83, uh -huh. of course, was, was very wet in California, which is often the case during 82, 83 was a really big El Nino event. It's often usually the case during really big El Nino events, except the most recent one. <laughs> um, the impact in causing droughts, um, monsoon failures in India, the impact yeah. of El Ninos on drought in Northeast Brazil was well known. I mean, yeah. there, there are classic papers that still a reference for all these yeah. global teleconnections. And because of that, the TOGA program, the Tropical Ocean Global Atmosphere program had been developed and was already in effect because the, it was known that if you could understand in advance what the tropical sea surface temperatures were going to be um, in during the time of an El Nino event, so from fall through to spring, um, you would be able to predict these weather anomalies all over the world. So people were thinking about that in the context of like, you know, a persistence forecast because an El yeah. Nino will last for several months so that you can already forecast on right. that. If you could forecast the evolution of the SST during the event or predict that an event would occur before the event started, then even better. Yeah. Um, so Mark and Steve's prediction and their, their um, press conference that they had was the real breakthrough for that. But other groups were trying to do predictions at that. At that time as well, including with um, statistical models. Sure, but just and nobody got there quite so successfully. No, no one got time. there quite so successfully. And and you know when you can do it with um, a geophysical model where you're just integrating a load of differential equations forward, it's unambiguous in terms of yeah, yeah, the yeah. where the skill is coming from. Whereas statistical forecasting is often ambiguous where the skill is really coming from. Yeah. So, um, but they did it. You know, it's like the they. The boldness of what they did was that they issued the forecast um, half a month before the event they forecast was to occur. So, you know, they, yeah. they they weren't going to be able to – they stuck their neck out there. Yeah. So that was uh, – so, yeah, I, was, I, I wasn't involved in that forecast um, or anything like that, but that was part of the, the fun time that we were having in a very small group at that. Right. That time. And these were, you know, a, the forecast model was an anomaly model. They assumed yeah. what the climatology was. Um, and I was working on why, what the climatology, why the, the climatology is the way that it is. And right. we did conceive that, that eventually this would lead to improved forecast models where we'd correctly simulate how yeah. the anomalies interact with the, the climatology. But yeah. we never, we never really got that far. Well, at some point, the GCMs the GC up. Right, I mean, right. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, that's true. But by the time you get around into the 1990s, the same level of skill with um, fully coupled general circulation models was, was starting to be achieved. Yeah. Okay, so you finish in when, the late 80s or 90s? No, about 1990. And is that, wait, is that when you went to Seattle? No. And then I went to Seattle for two years. Um, right. Correct, yeah, in 90. And 192, I think. 
Okay, in Seattle, two years worked with Batiste, I think. And I well, no? I nominally I was working with Ed Sarachek. Oh right, right, right. Okay, yeah. Um, who of course had done a lot of the early um, equatorial wave dynamics work with Mark Kane. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't really actually work with Ed. In fact, I continued working with Steve Zbiak on um, a rather um, quixotic pro- project where we were developing uh, a new type of atmosphere model. The idea was that um, uh, at that time, early 1990s, it was really hard to run general circulation models for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. You know, We didn't have the computer resources to do anything like that. Yeah. So um, even for many, many decades was difficult. So it was hard to apply these models to paleoclimatic problems or even to sort of fully understand the range of decadal variability or anything like that. So um, we wanted to try to develop a model that had a numerical scheme for solving the um, equations of motion um, with, that could be done with a long time step so that the model yep. could be run for much longer. Yeah, And the way that we did that was through this semi-analytical approach where the equations were um, expressed in forms of Huff modes so mm-hmm. that the time evolution was reduced to a, an ordinary differential equation that be, could be solved analytically with a long time step. Well, probably some number of, of them for all the how many mo- yeah, some yeah, number yeah, of modes? Yeah, thousands, of course. Right. So... Yeah. Um, of course, you know, the problem with that is, uh, you know, the, the, each mode, there's a forcing, the, the full three dimensional forcing, you know, the heating, um, friction and, and nonlinear terms end up on the right hand side of the equation and have yeah. to be held fixed over the time, the length of the time yeah. step. And th- that leads, when dealing with the nonlinear terms, that leads to, chronic inaccuracy to make Mm. the system stable and you can't represent the way that the transient eddies interact with the mean flow correctly it's it's funny how like in the history of the field a lot of problems like this come up where there's some computational limits and people come up with some clever (laughs) thing that ends up being an interesting (laughs) sort of applied math problem and some of those things turn out to be really interesting and others don't but it sort of seems like there isn't yeah. as much of that kind of stuff anymore. No, because it's too it's, it's so much easier to just solve everything with yeah. the computer now, right? So yeah. so that um that model was something that we we eventually abandoned because it it worked just great for a you know just a linear dynamical model representing say, you know, the tropical circulation where the transient eddy momentum fluxes aren't playing a key role in the circulation. Yeah. And we did continue to use it for that, but the idea of being able to represent the global atmospheric circulation including the eddy driven components like um it was never going to be applicable um yeah. to that. So it was um that was uh you know was quite a lot of time went into that and yeah. <laughs> didn't exactly pay off but i think it was a great learning experience but yeah. not one that you that stands as a milestone in in your an identifiable milestone in your career that you can point to <laughs> well i think many of us who are old enough and i am i mean I'm a little bit younger than you but not that much have had this experience of like doing one of these kind of projects that kind of has a doesn't 
you know, some, it turns into a sort of math problem that goes on a long time. It doesn't sort of go anywhere, but you don't, but where you don't regret it. And I, I don't know. I just have the feeling that we're not, the students today aren't suffering in this exact way. <laughs> they have other ways of suffering, but not this one. And so, you know, like any, right. Like yeah. anybody who's been around for a long time, you sort of think maybe they're missing out on something. Yeah. I think some of them think they're missing out on something actually by, by, by using uh global model so much. Yeah. Well, and, and and existing data archives even more so. I mean, existing already already already, already modeled re- results, yeah. right? Off yeah. the shelf model results. Yeah. Do you think this is, is a problem is, for the field that people um, are losing some set of skills? That well, it, it really ha it really has been a shift. I mean, all manner of PhDs now are produced based on just working with model simulations that were done by groups all over the world. You know, yeah, as yeah. part of CMIP and so on. Yeah, that's and, when it happened with CMIP. Yeah, three, whenever that was. Yeah, and oh seven or something. And now, with more and more large ensembles becoming available, then yeah, it it it. So they just become data analysis um, projects and probably fewer people are actually working in the actual modeling model development and so on but um so whether that's like um been a bad thing i i can i can understand the argument that that has been a bad thing and that's um an unfortunate development um whether i could point quantitatively to how that has been a negative influence i'm i'm not quite sure the science has has totally changed in since the 1980s when i started we you know when when we you know going back to the enso um the effects of el nino on the world you know yeah. at the beginning before the toga experiment began there was like an an effort to look at the impacts of the 8283 El Nino event on climate around the world and modeling groups got, uh, got together and agreed to do a series of experiments where atmosphere models had the sea surface temperature of 8283 and the big El Nino event imposed on them and they ran it out for the models for a few months. And, and I, I don't know how, but I, I remember I got GIS to agree to do that experiment hmm. and you know, we, the way it worked is that a big tape, you know, one, what were they? Nine inches across and like three quarters of an inch thick. Um, was, this is actually before my time. was <laughs> delivered to us in the mail, um, from the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. And that had the, um, some initial conditions and the sea surface temperature field in it that we were then to give the, the GIS model. Mm-hmm. And I seem to remember we were capable of running perhaps a few ensemble members, one, two, three for half a year or something like that when? through yeah. the event. This would have been 84, I think. Oh, right. I think this yeah, would have okay. been 84, yeah, yeah. Yeah. um, right early on. And then there was a meeting at, um, NCAR where the modeling groups got together to dis- to discuss this stuff, but there was no ability to transfer. There was no internet. You know, you yeah. couldn't transfer this stuff. You couldn't look at it. You couldn't compare it. Everyone had to get together right. with the pictures they had, you know, printed out and transferred right. onto a transparency to compare yeah. their, their <laughs> results. Right. right. It's like things took a long time. Yeah to get things going then and you know now the speed just with the availability of data 
and the way that we can analyze it and look at everything online and is um, generate data with ever faster computers, it's a completely different research community, research environment yeah. to the way it was. So, you know, we just, um, we revisited this old, this problem um, because, you know, within my thesis, I developed um, or we um Took, you know, they, they, they had that model, which they were being, they were using to predict El Nino's that Zbiak and Kane did. And I took those models and varied them in order to simulate the total sea surface temperature of the tropics, not, not just the anomalies. Um, yeah. and also the total atmospheric circulation, not just, you know, it's, it's anomalies as well. Um, and those were very simple linear dynamics, extremely treat for atmosphere and ocean, extremely tr simple treatments of thermodynamics and so on. Um, and, you know, we just published a paper in Nature Climate Change a couple of months ago where we used those models uh, again. Right. Was that a and conscious, like you missed that kind of stuff or you just felt that was the right tool for the moment? It was. So, you know, the problem is the, the temperature of the cold, of the tropical Pacific cold tongue, yeah. right? So, right. um, back in the 1990s, um, 1996, this was Amy Clement's PhD thesis. Yep. Um, <clears throat> or part, part of that. Um, we had, she did this experiment with the, the coupled ENSO prediction model where she just chucked a load of more radiation into the, into the ocean and found that the coupled system responds by warming up everywhere, but the cold tongue got colder. Right. Thermostat <laughs> hypothesis. <laughs> right. That, yes. the, that was in 1996. And that was just an experiment purely motivated by, ah, well, you can do it. How does it respond if you just made right. the sun stronger or did something like that? And then, um, in 19, and it was not motivated by data, but when we actually looked, perhaps several months later, at how the sea surface temperature had changed since sea surface temperature observations begin, which is in 1856, um, up until then, which was 19, early 1990s, we look at the trend in sea surface temperature and it had warmed up everywhere, but the cold tongue hadn't warmed up. Right. If anything, it had got colder. Right. Which is the opposite of what the climate models right. have been saying. And back then, the climate models, which were like CMIP zero or something, um, said that actually the cold tongue should warm up by more than the rest of the tropical right. Pacific Ocean. So there was a disagreement between the models and the observations. They still say that, don't they? Yeah. And we published a paper in Science in... 1997 yeah. that pointed out this discrepancy and said the real world is probably not cold tongue is probably not warming up because of this dynamically coupled response yeah. between the atmosphere and the ocean that if you increase radiative forcing the west pacific warm pool warms up the walker circulation strengthens you have more upwelling the thermocline comes up yeah. and the cold tongue gets gets cooler and that paper was greeted with Tremendous um, contempt from really? the the research community. Yes, one prominent scientist who shall remain nameless, nameless said it was borderline socially irresponsible because huh. it was calling into a question these big, fully complex models that did the other thing. Yeah, and everyone told us that well, it's probably the real the reason the real world hasn't warmed, cold tongue hasn't warmed up. It's just natural variability, you know. Yeah, yeah. And for for some reason, the natural variability when you compute a trend, it's 
aliasing into the trend and you're getting that that cooling or lack of warming. And if you just sit around and wait, the cold tongue's going to warm up. So we did sit around and wait for 20 years, <laughs> and then we looked again, and, you know, you can extend the trend calculation out to 2017 or whatever, and the cold tongue still hasn't warmed up. Right. There's been a couple of big El Nino events, but overall, right. in the mean. Yes, yeah. despite um, a series of big El Nino events, you know, um, 92, 93, uh, 97, 98, and um, 2000. 15, 16. 15, 15, 16, two of the biggest on record towards the end of that record. But you look, look at this sea surface temperature trends from the beginning of the, you know, from 1900 on or wherever it is, the cold tongue has not, um, warmed up. So we decided to revisit that problem. So given that every single run of every single CMIP 5 model <laughs> has the cold tongue warming up. Is it Right. It's not a case where we can see how the ones that get it right are different right. from the ones that get it wrong. They all get it wrong. Right. And by this time, the variability explanation is getting more difficult to. The ver- right. Yes. So you can't, you really can't use the variability explanation because, you know, um, that should have changed things, um, by now. So, so we decided, well, this is something that we should be able to look at again with these very simple models. Right. right. So, um, of course, we didn't have the code from the 1980s. No? No. <laughs> That's too bad. No. So we did have the, the ocean component, the, you know, linear shallow water ocean model. There was a more recent code that, um, Naomi Henderson had developed with Moshe Israeli and Mark Kane in the mid 1990s. Yeah. So that's a global shallow water equation model with a choice of how many vertical modes. So we used that one. Uh. Um, and then Naomi and I worked to put the sea surface temperature equation into that, into that model. Um, but on the atmosphere side, um, Naomi coded that up in, in Python, um, from scratch after I re-derived all the equations and worked out how to do it, how to do it again. Uh Um, so, and then we, we, we worked with those, made sure the ocean worked on its own and the atmosphere worked on its own and then coupled them together, which I'd never done with my, never got to with my, with my thesis. And, um, we had to change the surface, the way the model calculates surface heat flux because CO2 increase was not something we were concerned with back in the 1980s. So we changed the surface heat flux to put in a very simple radiation scheme. Yeah. And then we just coupled them and put the CO2 up and find that sure enough, it warms up everywhere, but the cold tongue doesn't warm up. Right. So what's, <laughs> I mean, so what's the explanation of what the big models are doing wrong? So, so we thought our answer was good enough, right? That we could show within, you know, uh, a sim- simple couple model of the tropical atmosphere and ocean that incorporated all the f- physics that every- everyone thinks is fundamental to the system. Within right. that model, right. the response to increasing CO2 is that everywhere warms, but the cold tongue doesn't warm up. And we had a dynamical right. explanation for why that occurs. But surely your reviewers asked, why doesn't the big models do this, right? I mean, well, so then, they should, right? So, 
you know, bugger the big models. We've got a physical explanation of why the real world does it. So we thought that's good enough, and we submitted that to nature, and everyone responded just like you and said, it's useless unless you explain why the models are wrong. I didn't say it's useless. (laughs) I'm just curious, but I just thought you must have thought about it. Well, we had thought about it, but we didn't know why the models were wrong. So after it got rejected by um nature we thought okay we're gonna have to explain why the models are wrong so we had thought it was that the problem you know in the with the models was likely due to uh, you know a thermocline that is too diffused out and they weren't capturing the right dynamics but we we had some colleagues at the uk met office who agreed to share with us the a lot of their data from their ocean um from the ocean components of their coupled model and they they simulate the thermocline actually structure very nicely in fact so um we decided it wasn't that and then we were just clutching at straws and then i thought um one day i'm just randomly thinking through things i thought you know i bet it could be the they the couple models are simulating the surface relative humidity field wrong hmm and the reason why I thought that might be the case is because the the normal the mod the bias that all these couple GCMs have is that their cold tongue is overdeveloped. It's too cold, yeah, and it extends too far to the west, yeah. And they correctly have an ITCZ to the north, but they have another one that's very zonally structured, and it's right. to the south of the equator. Famous WITZZ cold tongue bias. It's yeah. yeah, and this is common across all all the GCMs. Yeah, for um, decades and decades. For decades and decades, including back in you know CMIP zero in the nineteen nineties or whenever it was. So the anticipation is that that environment is going to be it's going to mean that on the equator with cold with water that is too cold with water that is too warm to the south of it you're going to just by eddies or diffusion you're going to have a high relative humidity field because some higher humidity mm-hmm. is going to be moved in over a too cold cold right, surface right okay and also quite likely it's going to have too low a wind speed because the wind is diverging into the the ITCZ to the south as well as the one to the north right. whereas the real world has the the south pacific trades sweep in and across the right. ITC across the equator into the ITCZ yeah. and sure enough they do if you plot the relative humidity fields in these models and the wind speed they have this relative humidity maximum uh-huh. along this this too cold cold tongue that yeah. isn't there in the real world right and they have a wind speed that is a meter per second or so too too low. Uh-huh. Um, so all that we were able to do in our model was to push the relative humidity field towards and the surface wind speed towards what it was in the CMIP-5 models and then increase the CO2. And sure enough, the cold tongue warms up by more than every, everywhere else. Okay. And, and you can see mechanistically why the i mean we don't, oh so don't why does that happen to go right. on for yeah, too many hours right. but I, but so kinda, the, the, the reason is that you know what the sea when you increase co2 in the atmosphere more radiation long-wave radiation goes into the surface and the surface has to respond respond to that and it initially right. tries to do that by sending more heat back right right out now 
the main way to do that is by the latent heat flux. Right, right. So the latent heat flux um, is depends on the difference between the surface saturation humidity and the oh, air humidity. Oh, okay, I get it now. So right. as the air humidity gets too high and the relative humidity I gets see. too low, you need a larger change in surface temperature to get the same You've change warm in it up latent too much. heat flux. You've got to warm it up more in order to get to the right... To oh, get okay. the same latent heat flux so you get a, That's great. And so similarly, you, if the wind speed is too is too um low you have to change yeah, the, the sea same surface way. temperature by more to get the same change in latent yeah, heat that's great so did you get it through the reviewers now or yeah 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 so <laughs> okay, that, that, that was that was um accepted and you know it's published so uh, so that's great but so after that long uh science discussion um we don't need to do the rest of your biography in so much detail, but we sort of stopped when you were a postdoc. So you, so just, I mean, so you've been in New York ever since, right? Right. So, I mean, is there anything, I mean, without going through all the years of that in, in, in detail, but is, is just missed the jazz scene or, I mean, do you want to say anything about like the decision to be here from then till now or how that oh, happened or? Well, um, yeah, we, I mean, we didn't, we weren't particularly happy on 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 the west coast and that was partly because you know just the cultural environment of the west coast the sort I of the, the laid backness and yeah. um the lack of edge there's just a, a level of tedium that um <laughs> <laughs> that we well it was great for visiting mountains and the seaside and so on you know but we yeah. we we came back to new york new york city simply because we appreciate in 1993 three or four which was pretty much at the when it was at the bottom of that yeah oh um, uh, yeah. dear you know yeah. um five or six murders a day kind of thing there the crack epi- epidemic yeah. was in full flow at that time yeah um i remember our good friend gainer you know she said um well you know we have a there's a nice um spacious one bedroom apartment in our building 108th and broadway it's on sale for thirty thousand. Why don't you buy it? Oh, you should have. <laughs> Didn't have thirty thousand. <laughs> Who finishing a postdoc? You know, has thirty thousand. I don't know. But you know, one <laughs> we didn't buy it because we didn't have the money. But we also thought that looking at the way New York City was in nineteen ninety four, thirty thousand dollars for an apartment on one hundred eighth and Broadway was not a good investment. <laughs> that was a way. Yeah. That was way too risky. But probably that's worth a million, million. Yeah. And well, a- anyone who's lived here for any length of time <laughs> has such stories of real estate that they should have yes. purchased. But yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, so we, re- you know, we really came back for because of wanting to continue living in New York City. Um, and then, which I don't regret at all. I love, yeah. I love New York City. I'm very yeah. happy here. Expect to stay here, but also the the environment at working at Le Mans. Right. You know, I mean, I was at the University of Washington, which is great. That was a yeah. good working environment, but yeah. it's still a, it's the the place the you know the Joint Institute for Study of the Atmosphere and Ocean was in an off campus <laughs> near off campus location. It was kind of separate from atmospheric sciences. Oceanography was down by the harbor and again, physically separate. So they didn't have the integration of atmosphere, ocean climate, um, and paleoclimate. That was in a different place in right. the University of Washington as well that, yeah, yeah. that Lamont does. So yeah. Lamont was absolutely unique in having all of those within the same building or on the same, yeah. um, campus. And, you know, I was very, 
keen then to sort of both be working on problems in modern tropical dynamics. I was still very much focused in the tropics at that time, um, but also the role of the tropics in past climate change and yeah. ice ages and and so on. So yeah. there, there, there was just a no-brainer that yeah. Le Mans was the best place to be. And the fact that yeah. it, it, you could work at Le Mans just outside New York City and live in New York City, right. um, it was just ideal. So it's my perception of it. I mean, so I've been here for the last 20 years, which is not quite as long, but you know, I've been around for a fair amount of it, your history. And it seems to me that you came back in the 90s, sort of joined the same group in some sense yeah. that you'd been in. Right. And then just slowly advanced to sort of <laughs> right. eventually take it over. I mean, it's sort of like you. Well, and there are other senior people came in as well. And, you know, so Mark's retired now. Yeah. But in some sense, the group that you're more or less leading is sort of the same group that you. Yeah. Really, it, as a graduate student, if you look at the history of it. Yeah. Which is kind it, of pretty rare. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that often. And I, I thank Mark and Steve for allowing me to come back because often former students are sent, you know, sent out from the nest and not allowed to, to, to ever, ever come back. So, I mean, do you want to say anything about the sort of structure of Lamont and how it's different than other places or the, I mean, because you've been very involved in the sort of thinking about how the place runs and how to, how the roles of the scientists have changed and how to make it better and all of that. I mean, is there anything, do you want to talk about that or? Oh, oh, what could I, what could I say about that? You mean in terms of how the scientific research goes at, at Lamont or more of the, 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 the facilitating the research? What, what are you? I was, I guess I was thinking of the role of the research faculty. I mean, cause it's historically a place where a lot of people have come and been very comfortable in these soft money jobs. And Lamont has a great oh, history yeah. of hiring fantastic right. scientists, but it's gotten more difficult, you yeah. know, to fund people this way. And so people have gotten yeah. more stressed out. The young people are more inclined <laughs> to leave. And you've been very vocal at trying to sort of make the place, figure out how to make I, the place healthier. Yeah. I'm sort of interested in institutions and we're right. in an unusual one in a difficult moment. So I just want to. Yeah, I didn't. So that, yeah, that is interesting because, um, you know, I by coming back here, I was moving into um, a soft money position. At that time, it was, you know, there was still some level of institutional support that came from the Lamont Doherty um, endowment, but you had to get the majority of your yeah. your funding off grants. And Basically, as it I is. I didn't really think, I, di- I didn't remotely think that that was a bad thing because one, um, Mark Kane and Steve Zebiak were excellent mentors and, and yeah. leaders of the group because yeah. they, they had research funding from NSF and they had yeah, research yeah. funding from no. And they say, well, we'll, you know, we'll pay you some yeah, yeah. months of salary off this, start yeah. writing proposals. Eventually yeah. you'll be successful and you'll start covering yourself. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, we, you know, we have this funding and so yeah. on. So, um, and it worked. I, you know, the first proposal I did right which was related to the toga core program in fact yeah. did get did get funded and you know one way or another we put put all got the the money together and as i got promoted more of my salary came from various different yeah lamont or earth institute um sources but yeah. i for a for a young scientist now it's a very very different yeah um right exactly in environment it's much, um, it's much tougher to get um the funding we 
in our group, we lived for a very, very long time off very large pots of money that came from yeah. Noah. Yeah. Noah from the late 1990s or maybe no, from the early 1990s on was had this program on the o- ocean's role in climate. And that supported a lot of people at Lamont and in collaboration with Scripps. Um, and when that ended, we were able to continue it. Um, in, in a program looking at global hydroclimate variability on decadal time scales and, and then, but then, you know, there's been this long term decline in NOAA funding. So now, you know, we, the only money we get from NOAA are these very yeah. small individual PI, small yeah. amount of funding. Yeah, so we, it's been difficult to, keep the group going as it had been before because primarily because of that lack of large institution large support that noah was willing to give to certain institutions so anyone going into this kind of position now has to be aware of the problems of it i still feel that we're actually doing pretty well on the research faculty um within oceans atmosphere and climate we've made some excellent hires in the last few few years um and i still think there are people who you know primarily this is what they want to do there are people who you know they primarily want to research we all all of those researchers are involved with students and sometimes undergraduates sometimes high high school students undergraduate research projects involved with co-advising graduate students so they're all performing an, an important educational role and sometimes they might teach one course as yeah. well and get paid for that, but they're not nine months supported teaching faculty with a primary responsibility yeah. to teach courses and yeah. uh, a lot of them. So I think, you know, I think, you know, Lamont's research success is very much predicated on, on the fact that the majority of its staff are in positions where they primarily are focusing yeah. on, on, on research. Yeah. And I mean, I don't mean to, f- make it really about Lamont. I mean, I think Lamont is just endemic of a, it's typical of a lot of places in the country that have been funded primarily by research grants, but it's just, I mean, everything you say is true. I, I, what my feeling about it though, is that as, you know, a senior person who's working with younger people in these positions, I just feel some amount of pain that we can't offer them, you know, the kind of, security that any of us who are quite a bit older had whether we were in a research position or a regular yeah. faculty position either way it was easier back then we still have to use the same model um as was used when when i came in you know we've got to bring people in they have to have a, a senior person who's looking out for them who has funding yeah. who can help them yeah yeah pay them pay them salary while they try to develop their own funding i still think the american system especially with NSF, but to some extent with NOAA, does still provide significant amounts of money to scientists who are getting started. Yeah. That you know they can put in a proposal, they'll fund them for four months a year or something like yeah, it's that. It's still doable, but it's 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 still it's still it's doable with a with a bit of help. But um, what would greatly help is if we did get a huge amount of private donations that was unrestricted endowment and yeah. would say you know to junior people well you know you're only going to have to bring in half of your half of your salary because the institution yeah, right. can pay the other half but one you know that money isn't forthcoming yet we hope that it will get it if it does if it is forthcoming it still requires a different 
mode of op- business model for how the institution yeah. will work because right. you won't be bringing in all the in- indirect cost recovery funding right. that the federal government pays to to pay right. for the sewage system, the water system, right. repair the roads, all the things that enable research right. to 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 get done that universities depend largely yeah. on the federal government. To, yeah, for to every – people don't understand that for every dollar of <laughs> salary we pay somebody on a grant, we pay – what is it? 60 cents of – you know, the, the, yeah. the grant pays 60 cents to the lab and that keeps the lights on and all the right. other stuff that you said. Yeah. That's, private how, that's how the American system works, not just for us but the whole country. Yeah, right. All, all the research and the private funding the typically wants to pay for the salaries of researchers and for um, direct laboratory experiments and things like that. It doesn't feel that the private funders don't feel that they should be paying for keeping the electricity on or the water system and so on. Right. So as long as we're here, as long as we're talking about funding, um, can we talk a little about politics? Yeah. So I, I have the sense from having known you a long time that, you know, I know that you're a person of strong views and I get the sense that there's some history of activism there, but I've never really learned what it is. So, I mean, uh, um, where, where, where does your, where do your, <laughs> what, is it, am I wrong? No, 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 you're not wrong. Can you no. tell me about that? No, I've, I've been politically active on and off for, you know, since before I came to this country. So, yeah. Um, in, in the 1980s, when I was a graduate student, I was very politically active, and that was uh, primarily around Central America issues, uh-huh. um, because the U.S. was waging a series of proxy wars in yep. Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala, yep. and, and other places. I had a vague being... fear that I could get drafted. <laughs> right. That was I was about that, getting to be that age, yeah. And that was being heavily opposed by... Um, Many people within the United States, mostly outside of the Democratic Party, but attempting to influence the Democratic Party and the administration to end these wars and support the popular movements within the Central American countries that were trying to get rid of the corrupt dictatorships that, in many cases, the U.S. had installed. So. Um, so I was, um, heavily involved in that and both the, on the Columbia campus, but within the city and within the wider, um, metropolitan area. And that's actually how I met my wife, Nancy, because, um, oh. she was teaching English as a second language at a small, um, school, the workers education center <clears throat> that should be said in Spanish. Um, that was run by a small collection of Latin American Marxists. And uh-huh. that was down in the West, in, in Hell's Kitchen area. Uh-huh. And some of the political people I was doing political work at Columbia, um, my good friend, still to this day, Cyrus Visa, he's a history professor at Bentley now. He's a history uh-huh. graduate student here. Yeah. He did political work with us here, but he also did um, the English language education at the Centro as well so that's how the groups um effectively cross fertilized and um we used to have these big soccer games up in inwood park on sunday (laughs) sunday afternoons Uh where all the latin americans and the columbia people would get together that was a lot of fun and so those were yeah those that those were the heydays when i went to seattle i was working there with the rainbow coalition um, and also to some extent with the Washington State Democratic Party. So I was sort of a little bit closer towards mainstream 
politics. This is like organizing or what's the Um I was trying to work this was when the North American Free Trade Agreement yeah. was being um negotiated yeah. by Clinton, right? Yeah, yeah, early nineties. Uh Clinton came in ninety two. So yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it began Clinton before signed him. it, I'm pretty I think sure. It yeah. might have begun before him. I mean it might have. Um and we were trying to pressure to get the labor protections more mm-hmm. firm there. That was like mm-hmm. a big um concern. That was an issue, of course, in manufacturing unions in Seattle, like yep. Bo- Boeing and so yeah. on. There was a lot of concern about that. Um I mean, did you bring this interest with you from the UK? I mean, how, oh yeah, the labor yeah, yeah. Thing? I mean, how, where does it yeah, yeah, start? Yeah. No, no, it, it definitely. I came came from the UK. I've you know I've been on the left wing of politics since I first became politically conscious at age thirteen or fourteen right. or something. So yeah. I did some you know work in in Liverpool before before coming over. So, but it 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 grew within the United States maybe yeah. because it was so easy to oppose the Reagan administration, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Um, we. Yeah, it's we of course we're rightfully horrified by the way this administration behaves, but you know, it's, <laughs> back back in the nineteen yeah. eighties with Reagan, it's hard it? to. I mean, I remember that, you yeah. know, each, but it's so hard to imagine now the things that seemed so awful then. Um, well, from the perspective of today, yeah, but it was. I mean, you know, it's the, all kind of, you know, the, it's all the part US of the same trend, back but... then, all over the world, was supporting a series of proxy wars. Sure. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. thousands of people were, were dying yeah, as that a was result of US foreign policy. Yeah. Um, which, you know, again, that happened, of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on with rather different motivations. But at least in the last three years, we haven't had any new wars. Right. <laughs> no. Um, no. But I, you know, so in terms of my political involvement, it sort of has come. And, I mean, I haven't been as politically involved in recent um, um, couple, last couple of decades. I still try to write write things every now and then and send them off to <laughs> the New York Times or whatever, and yeah. they they'll get pick, picked up. Um, right now, I'm um, with the Green New Deal and the New York State. Climate Leadership and Climate Protection Act. I'm, whenever people ask me to go give talks to political groups about that and, um, from the climate science perspective, but also how climate efforts to adapt and mitigate climate change have to include social and economic justice components as well. So I'm agreeing to do, um, plenty of that. And I right now within the Earth Institute, I'm trying to get the EI involved in being part of the discussion on these climate plans as well. So that's sort of an, um, sort of where cl- these days, you know, a lot of the, the 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 climate work we do is directly blends over to a lot of the political yeah. action as well. Were you aware at the beginning? I mean, was there any connection between these things, the science and the politics, in the beginning? No. So um, that's most people's answer, by the way. <laughs> when I ask, with a few small number of exceptions, that's what most most of us. Me too. I mean, me also. No, and you know that um so there wasn't I mean we were all aware in graduate school in the nineteen eighties that carbon dioxide was gonna warm the world up. Yeah. That wasn't really a much of um a political controversy at at the time. But the other thing that happened in the nineteen eighties, um 
um, there, the bigger the bigger issue at that time was ozone depletion. Yep. Right. That yep. was the big scare that the at- within the atmosphere. Yeah. And that became documented thanks to NASA, NOAA, and the British Antarctic Survey in the late yeah. 1980s, 86, 87, something like that. Yeah. Wasn't understood why it was occurring. There were theories, but they were, wasn't really pinned down why it was occurring. But the Reagan administration and Reagan himself and also, um, Schultz and some of the other people who were, who were behaving atrociously when it came to foreign policy in Central America and Africa and so on took this problem seriously yeah. and led the world to agree to the Montreal Protocol, which yeah. began the phase-out of CFCs and saved us from that environmental right. disaster. I mean, it helped that the chemical... <laughs> yeah, it's a great success story. I mean, it helped that the chemical companies at some point got on board because they realized they could sell everybody another refrigerator with new chemicals in it. Yeah, the chemical companies initially opposed it, but they, you know, in their non-public statements, they presumably knew that this would set up a race for whoever was going to come up with the refrigerants that were not CFCs was going to make a lot of money. And that happened pretty quick. I mean, oh, that happened pre- that happened pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a technically, although they claimed it was going to be hard, it was a technically doable problem. And they probably right. knew that it, that it, right. that it would be. It's, it's clearly an easier problem to solve than CO2, which affects the whole energy system of the world. However, if this problem came up now, with the Trump administration, I would imagine we would not solve it. Yeah. And we now, what we, the, if you look at what the predictions were for what was going to happen if we didn't solve, yeah. if we didn't get rid of CFCs, those predict, those predictions were far less severe than what we now know right. would have happened because, you know, yeah. the Montreal Protocol, as part of it, it agreed to set up continual computer simulations of what would have happened if the world had done nothing. Yeah. The so-called world avoided yeah. simulations. And what would have happened was far worse than what right. in 1986-87 they thought would happen. Right. So we really... Because of the circulation shifts and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also what was not fully understood in 86 was that CFCs themselves were a potent greenhouse gas. Right. So we also evolved... It, um, avoided a whole load of global warming as a result of this as well. Right. Although largely, some of the new stuff is pretty bad in that respect too. Some of the HFCs. Yeah. Yeah. HFCs, yeah. HCFCs, whatever. The well, they don't have, they don't have C. There's no chlorine in them. So the okay, hydrofluorocarbons, right, right, right. right, some of them right, are very, right. and much, most of the world would like to phase those out too. But again, the U.S. is proving to be the, uh, yeah. the, 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 sticking what's the word um well they're blocking that right Obstable, now yeah or not taking action on that so i mean so it's safe to say well it sounds like for most of your career that the you know the the science is just a, a um you know intellectual pursuit and a and a career and then as time goes on it starts to seem more and more politically relevant yeah and- so but it, it began becoming politically relevant once the interannual the ability to forecast el nino events right was developed by mark and steve and then the right. rest of the world in the late 1980s right because right. then you would be able to predict weather anom- anomalies that cause floods and droughts all over right. the world yeah. that have huge social impacts so right Mark obviously 
took that and created the International Research Institute right. for Climate Prediction, now Climate and Society, which right. was expressly built to apply these forecasts to yeah. deal with um, to apply, use the forecast to prevent disasters right. or, uh, or anticipate disasters and mitigate right. human suffering. So I think Mark again is a, a, another very political person. Yeah, but he really did then seize that opportunity to take the science and use it for public good. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, what about, I mean, what's, what about now? I, I've been struggling, you know, the last two years with like, what's the right way for a scientist to respond? You know, those of us who have reasonably stable careers and don't have to worry about our own survival and who have some measure of public visibility, however small it might be compared to some people, but we still have some. And, you know, what's the right, what should we be doing with ourselves if we're really upset about how things are going, you know, do we just keep doing the science because that has some value by itself or do we uh, choose to be active in other ways and what are the right ways? <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, well, obviously there's a place for everyone. I think it's fine for people to continue advancing the science. There's an awful lot of science that needs to be done. There's just plain sure. straight science that we haven't solved this problem. We still don't know how much the climate is going to change and how fast it's going to do and what all the implications for ecosystems are for sure. agriculture, you know, all sorts of things that we really don't know. So that's great. But um, I mean, but I want to hear the, but what comes after the, but, but don't you, <laughs> when the part that bothers me though, is that it doesn't really seem that progress on solving the problem really depends on resolving any of those uncertainties. In oh other words, no, absolutely we're so not. far no. from any reasonable no. action Right. That, that that all that yeah. science is great, but it's yeah. not going to make any difference yeah. at this no. moment in history. That the answer to that science will make it much clearer what we have to adapt to, yeah. because we're not doing anything. Right. Um, improved knowledge is going to do nothing to right. further encourage action to prevent, right. you know, climate change. Right. That does not depend on anything on what scientists do whatsoever. Let's forget that right now. Well, it doesn't depend on the research <laughs> that scientists do anyway. Maybe there's other things we can right. be doing. It's the reason nothing happens is um, because of ideological reasons. I think, right. you know, um, I heard on NPR, it's maybe a year or two ago, Rachel Hay. What's her name? Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine Hayhoe. Rachel Hayhoe was an English cricket player, from, okay, women's cricket know. player from the 1970s. Yeah, and I'm always making that mistake. But um, Catherine Hayhoe um, said that, and who hangs out in conservative political circles, <laughs> um, but um, she said that the reason nothing gets, gets done is because many in the United States, many conservative people are averse to the solutions right. they are solution averse so they right. might no doubt about that deeply down accept that humans are changing the climate and it's because of greenhouse gas emissions due to use of fossil fuels right but they don't like what the solutions are which right. are that the government has to play a more active role in right. leading to a transform transformation of our energy system. It might yeah. mean we have to live a bit differently, think rethinking the way we deal with transportation, the yeah. size of our houses, yeah. how our communities are structured, all these yeah. things that could reduce CO2 emissions. And they don't like those things because right. they fly in the face of free market, untrammeled um, 
capitalist activity where individuals can just make these yeah. um de- decisions on their own right. so i think she Catherine Hayhoe was absolutely right there no and doubt. the challenge is and i think this is doable is to make the solutions appealing hmm. um and i think that is where the the Green New Deal, which is being aspirational within Congress now, and to some extent, you know, the New York Climate Leadership and Climate Protection Act, and also similar initiatives in California and, and other states are going to that point in that they are imagining a future where we are, one, going to deal with this greenhouse um, gas um, emissions problem, but at the same time, we're going to deal with that and in a way that it solves a lot of other problems related right. to social inequality, environmental inequality, yeah. um, and also, you know, our quality of living. Yeah. Um, such that it's a wholesale transformation that, okay, for conservatives who live in Texas exurbs and they're in their fifties and sixties, maybe they'll never get on board this. But I think right. for young people living everywhere, they can there's good chance that they will get on board this because this is the big right. challenge of their life of their lifetime yeah. right this is this is it for the world over it's like the big challenge is how are humans going to learn to live on this planet in a way that we don't destroy it right, right. that we in the end yeah. we just live on it in a way that everything is powered by our friendly star the sun you know yeah. whether it's the wind the waves um, water, eventually the, the sun itself, all of our power system comes from the sun, which we can rely on to be doing this forevermore. Right. Um, and I find that, you know, um, should be as exciting a challenge as the space race was should for be. many people in, yeah. in the 1960s and 1970s and as exciting as many advances in medical science yeah. that people get really thrilled about correctly so so i think you know the the way that it's being rephrased within the united states now under the green new deal we're putting all those pieces together if that can be transformed into a real vision i feel that we can get to the point where young people are excited about this and it's gonna happen so i mean you know i I, i'm on board with it i mean i think it's fantastic the the notion that um climate is coupled to all the other social justice issues is something that's you know should have happened much earlier it was kind of a pitched as a niche issue for environmentalists and scientists and that was a mistake and so this is the right way to do it i mean the details is one thing i don't think we're that i mean whether we're that close to having the sun power everything you know and all the right way to make it work either politically or practically is another thing but i'm totally there but what you're saying the political vision is is to because it's not going to happen right under the current government. We have to have a different president, probably both houses of Congress. Right. So the vision is to mobilize young people and and win win big politically. Well, the yeah, we need we need that. But in the meantime, the states can do a lot, mm. and um, mm. California and New York as the two biggest states, which themselves are like they're and. California is like the I don't know, what sixth, seventh, eighth largest economy in the world. If it was a country, and yep. New York is somewhere in the teens in terms of its economy yep. in the world. So, um, 
they're big in their own own right and they're going to be moving ahead on this if we force them to do it to live up to the right. promises they've made right. they will be the laboratories for how you can develop policies Good. for this that will will work that then can be right. applied at the the federal level so we don't have to wait until we have the house the senate and the presidency right. the filibuster will likely prevent much of this from happening even <laughs> right. if we get the senate right. um yep. so we don't have to wait until we have all that for things to actually be happening so i mean and so you've been organizing this effort to uh, get columbia the columbia earth institute involved and i'm i've been away most of the summer so i've missed all the meetings i'm i'm gonna make it to the one tomorrow but um so uh, i guess I, I maybe i sort of know the answer but i I mean, what, what's the right role of academics and institutions in this? I mean, there would be some who would say, well, we shouldn't be advocates. You know, we should be unbiased, blah, 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 blah. I, I don't really buy that. It's pretty clear you don't either. But I mean, what, what's the right way to think about well, that? Right. So I was talking to you, right, you know, in the last five minutes as a, as a citizen, right? Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of work that we can do, um, within the university, I don't think we need to take an explicitly, um, advocate role in regard to this. I think, you know, the, in, let's just take New York state. How is New York state going to get to net zero emissions in 2050? Right. Right. There's an awful lot of research that needs to be done to work yeah. out in terms of transportation systems, energy systems, yeah. um, housing systems that has yeah. to be done um, in order to work out how that can be, how that can be achieved. Yeah. And then when you work, look at that, you're going to be looking at what the social economic yeah. impacts of all of that. So yeah. I think for a, a university like us, just considering how this could be done is going to help hopefully in being able to guide how it's done so that the, the policies are a success and that yeah. they gain political right. support. So I think that, yeah. that I think, for you know, that's not an advocacy role. That's like right. a, um, an informational role. But I also yeah. think a role that we could have is working with artists and of all sorts is creating some sort of imagine imagination of what that future will look like. I think that's one of the compelling things here, where you know you can combine research and science and engineering with yeah. artists to say, you know, what would New York City, what would a New York City transportation right. system look like yeah. if it's a net zero emissions world in 2050? Yeah. It's not going to look like the way people move yeah. around the city isn't going to look like the way it is the way it is now. Well, but to get back to how we educate students, because this is another thing that's been kind of, uh, I've been struggling with, I, you know, you talked about all the research that has to be done and you talked about housing systems and social systems and all those things. None of those were climate research, right? Or physical atmosphere or ocean science research. So students express an interest in their, our field because they want to be part of the solution, you know, somehow. Right. We have to, it, it seems like we have to advise them to, to choose a different direction than what we did. Well, um, the, Okay, so it just depends. It depends what particular problem that um, you're thinking about. The well, what in, are the climate research challenges of a, of, of well, a Green New Deal? Well, so let's just okay. So the Green New Deal and the New York State Plan. There's a whole climate adaptation part to that. 
right? Yeah. So how is the sea, the sea level going to be transforming around the coast of New York or California mm. or whatever? Mm. That very much does depend on climate research. Adaptation science. <laughs> right. Okay. So yeah. they're but really, it's pretty applied compared to what we were There's applied, to do. although, yeah. you know... If we're Which is fine. I mean, I'm how, all for it, but yeah. Right. But if we're talking about how the ice sheets are, uh, are going to respond, there's real basic science there for how the atmosphere, the ice sheets and the ocean couple that hasn't been hasn't been solved how the ice sheets move and so on and i think there there are going to be young people who are going to be wanting to work directly on a lot of these you know climate mitigation problems they're going to be wanting to work on transportation systems and then there are other people who are going to be wanting to work on um you know really narrowing down exactly how the climate change is going to be in the future and what we have to adapt to right and right. so i think there's there's a role for everyone this is what's great right whether you are a a sociologist, whether you're an an economist, whether you're a glaciologist or a tropical <clears throat> dynamics or an atmospheric convection person, there's a role for everyone. Right, but if somebody young comes to you and says, "Richard, I, you know, I I have this, uh, you know, I I like science, you know, I want to have a academic career, but I want to make a difference in the world," you know, what would you? What should we tell them to do? I could say that I would tell them that they could fit into any num any nice. number of these okay. things, right? And I mean, dodging the question. <laughs> I don't think that's. I mean, so there are the way ecosystems respond to both changing yeah. temperatures and rising CO two is a huge unknown. Yeah, right. We don't. Oh yeah, model- huge unknowns are there. Nobody right. argues that. So I would. I, I would list that as one example of a huge unknown. If someone could work out how that's going to play out, yeah. then they can really make a difference. I mean, what I want to do, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to carry on doing the, you know, the basic science that I do. Increasingly, my career is working on problems that, or trying to work on problems where, that couple together human systems and yeah and, we do we and, should have and, talked about that all your work on droughts and climate and maybe we should list some of those droughts in the west and yeah so droughts that's a simple one as it affects water resources and agriculture but yeah. you know right now we've we've put in a proposal to nsf looking at like how climate change and climate variability are going to impact agriculture and food prices and migration in west africa yeah 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 right so um that went off to to nsf that's that's one um we're we're developing a proposal now about how um the coupling between climate drought fire and real estate markets uh-huh. in the southwest so how yeah, yeah. right now the the way that those natural and human systems couple is in a terrible positive feedback loop that is leading to ever greater fires and ever and more stuff being put in harm's way and yeah. we want to work out how you could get that feedback loop going in the other way to a sustainable forest systems and um the way how housing locations and um, yeah. real estate markets um reinforcing that and keeping things out of harm's way so yeah. i'm very keen to do those kind of couple problems where you yeah. really have a climate issue and you also have a human issue and they're all um coupling um together but um i also think you know climate scientists whenever possible should be speaking out about you know the, the yeah. how pressing the problem is and yeah um i think we should be con- 
when we feel confident in doing so saying what the the what possible solutions are and yeah. you know medical scientists have never backed away from this so yeah. medical scientists don't back away from the policy implications they don't do that yeah. when it comes to talking about obesity or diabetes or the dangers of smoking right or even going back um going back to political activism you know marx was an economist but he certainly didn't back away from the policy implications yeah. of it of of his work yeah so why I mean I'm totally we? with you but there is but there is a lot of reticence still amongst a lot of our colleagues yeah. there are some who are very good at speaking out but there are a lot who are very hesitant right. to do so and you know that's okay I guess but I think yeah uh, but it's um yeah I, I we but like you said, you know, more climate scientists talking about the problem isn't going to mean the problem ends up being solved. I think, you know, that really is going to be more in the realm of politics and um, where we can get to the stage where people can put forward solutions to this problem that are really attractive and appealing and motivate people to actually work to make sure those um those yeah. policies are put into place and that's really in the political world well i think what we were saying agreeing on is that basic climate research is not immediately addressing the the political issue but i mean i think a lot about whether as scientists we have we ought to have a we ought to try to have a special role in the political debate because we aren't just the average person right we're we're deeper in it than the average person than we yeah i mean we should be always trying to work out and this is partly you know what we're doing with the work within the ei on <clears throat> the green new deal and the new york state plan is to yeah. try to you know just get engaged and ensure that you know the science is being presented reasonably yeah, and yeah. The decisions are being based on yeah. on on reasonable science and yeah. we should try to make sure that the way the science is talked about is as solid as possible yeah um that you know these this is this is a we're talking about a major transformation of american society here and it's going to be based initially on a lot of findings of climate science and yeah. we should try to make sure that those findings are as well backed up in the science yeah. as possible good all right well um i know you got to go soon is there anything else we should be talking about um well no that covers a lot of things huh <laughs> okay thanks a lot richard yeah thanks thank you very much in. alan okay Okay, what a great conversation with Richard Seeger. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hom, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Thanks for listening.